Today's Bible reading comes from Ephesians 5, and we're starting at chapter, uh, verse 21 to 33. So I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bible, but it's also on the screen. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Well, thank you, Alicia. And uh, if you've just dropped in here and you're wondering why we had that reading, we've been working our way through Ephesians, and this is the bit we're up to today. And if ever there was a passage which cuts against the grain of our culture, this is it. All right. Let me read out, just to accent this, let me read out again the verses about the wives. And I just want you to listen to what's going on in you. Are there any alarm bells going off in your heads as we read this? Ready? Okay. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Any clanging? Any noise going off? For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Any noise going off there? Okay. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Foghorns, do you know? Air raid sirens, all right. I read that last verse to my daughter this week, who is now married. She said, well, obviously, a wife shouldn't submit to her husband in the area of home decoration. That would be silly. Um, and then she said, and she quoted the line from a big fat Greek wedding, a man may be the head, but the woman is the neck who can turn the head any way she wants. Okay, now maybe you had a more extreme reaction. In our culture today, that word submit sounds like a dirty word especially in the whole context of the Me Too movement, and to apply that word from the Bible to what women should, how women should behave in marriage is an explosive statement. Of course, it wouldn't be so explosive had not men used or misused this verse in the past 
to justify bullying and oppression and their right to order their wives around as if their wife was a slave or a doormat. Then, of course, because of feminism and gender equality, the very suggestion that there actually might be differences in roles within marriage uh, is controversial, if not offensive. Added to that, you've got the huge potential for misinterpretation because isn't the very idea of male headship a major contributor today towards domestic violence? And hasn't it been used to justify why a wife should stay in that situation instead of leaving? Now, I'm not going to cover that, um, that topic today, but if that is an issue or you'd like more info on the subject, you could refer back on our website to the sermon preached on January the 12th from this passage where I covered the topic, Does Male Headship Cause Domestic Violence? Then even if you get through all of this, okay, there's confusion. Does male headship and the wife's submission mean that the husband gets to make all the decisions? Is this saying that the wife has to absolutely obey her husband at all times? And if it doesn't say that, what on earth does it say? Okay. So all these criticisms and hurdles and difficulties might make us um, metaphorically shut our ears to this and close our Bibles and just move on to the next bit. But this is God's word, isn't it? (laughs) And we do need to actually listen really carefully to what God is saying here. So just to get us started, what I would like you to do, if you've got your Bible open, just shut it for the moment or close your phone, turn it over, and I I want you just to talk to the person next to you, and the task is this, to try and remember as much as you can of what this passage says. I'm trying to really get you to become aware of how much you've listened to this, okay? So here you go, you've got a minute, okay, go. Go. Okay, let the other person speak if you've been hogging all the airtime. Okay. (laughs) All right, sorry, I haven't given you enough time. I do apologise. However, there will have been some points that you easily remembered, and then there will be some details which you think you've remembered, but you'll discover that you actually misremembered, you've got it wrong, and then there are bits that you'll be completely ignorant of, you'll have glossed over, and actually as we move through, I think they are the bits to pay attention to, because they are the ones that'll crack open this passage. Let's ask for God's help. Our, Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that your word is life, and it is good, and it is good for us to hear and understand it rightly, and also to correct any misunderstandings so that we can apply it rightly in our lives. So we ask for your help, help me to be clear and help the rest of us to be attentive and give us humble hearts as we sit and help us not to judge you or judge the Bible, but actually listen because we want to know what you say and we depend upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now uh, if you ever build a house, you know that before you start Uh, building the walls, you have to clear the land and lay a foundation. Okay, before we dive into this, we need to do some land clearing, okay, because there's a lot of scrub there um, in terms of our misunderstandings that need to be cleared up. Our misunderstandings can be cleared up to a large degree by looking at the context, and there are four insights from context, and I'm going to 
this might take a little bit of time to move through them, but they're really important. First of all, the context for the commands given here is the grace of God which works itself out in our lives. So the book of Ephesians divides roughly into two halves, chapters one to three, chapters four to six. Chapters one to three is about the theology of the gospel. Chapters four to six, roughly, is, is about the application of that. Now, you, get to, you move through chapters one to three, you get to the end, and at the end, um, you see the goal of what God has done for us in Christ, and that is that we would be filled up, the church would be filled up with God to his glory, that God's fullness would dwell in us to his glory. And then that's applied, that's meant to come out. But if we ask, what does it mean to be full up with God, okay? It's to be full up with who God is, his character. Okay, what's God's character? If you read through Ephesians 1 to 3, and I was to ask you then the question, could you tell me some words to describe the character of God from there? I'm guessing you would say things like, he is loving, he is a God of grace, he is generous, he is so kind, okay? That's who God is, God wants us to be full of him, and then the idea is in chapters four to six that that fullness is meant to flow out in the way in which we treat one another. Okay, so the context is godly grace. So the start of chapter four, for example, tells us to be completely humble and gentle, to be patient, bearing with each other in love. We are to be like God to one another. That's what our unity is meant to look like. Same at the start of chapter five. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. And then our passage, now we think it begins at verse 21, that's where the reading begins, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, but actually in the original, it begins a bit further back, it's one sentence. The main command is to be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another, singing, giving thanks, submitting to one another. So the main command is to be filled with who God is, be filled with the Spirit, and for, therefore your godly, who God is to come out in your lives. Okay? So the context of this is God's grace. Um, the assumption uh, when we come to chapter five is that the wives and husbands who've been sitting here listening to this are people who have received the grace of God in their lives and that grace has transformed them and it is letting them transform their relationships. The context is the grace of God. Second insight, we are all called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what it says in verse 21. Now please hear, we are being told that no one is not called to submit. Everyone is called to submit to one another in some way, including husbands, including next week, we'll see parents and even masters of slaves. How do these groups of people submit? Well, because their behavior towards those under them, if you like, the wives, the, the children, the slaves, their behavior is actually an act of submission to Christ himself. That is, every action of all of us towards others is meant to come out of our massive regard for Christ because of the grace we have received from him. That's what makes Christianity different to Islam. 
right? So the word Islam means submit. Here we're being told you've got to submit. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that our submission is not based on terror. It is based on who Christ is and our, our great regard for him because we have received so much from him and he's given up so much for us, all right? That is the difference. Thirdly, submission, even though we all have to submit, it's going to look differently in different relationships because not all relationships are the same. So in verse 21, we're told to, we're submitting to one another. This flows out of being filled with the Spirit. And then it moves through, Paul moves through different categories of relationships. Wives to husbands, then next week children to parents, slaves to masters. And then he gives also a word for husbands and parents and masters. What he's saying is there are different sorts of relationships and then different roles within those relationships and our submission to Christ and how that works out with treating one another will look differently depending on which relationship we're talking about and which role we have within that relationship. Okay. Now, this needs to be borne in mind when we ask, what does submission mean for Christian wives? Specifically, does it mean obey? Now, it's interesting when you look at the passage that keeps going on for next week, chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. When we look at what submission looks like for children and slaves, submission does mean obey. Paul explicitly uses that word. And therefore, it's telling that when he speaks about what submission looks like for a Christian wife in relation to her husband, isn't it interesting that that word obey is never actually used? He could have used it if that's what he meant, because he uses it next week in chapter 6. But he doesn't. He leaves it out. What that means is that if we uh, want to interpret what a wife's submission to her Christian husband is as you must obey, that is a really long stretch. And actually, it's probably wrong. Right. <laughs> so that raises the issue, what does it mean? Hang on to your hats. Here we go. Okay. Um, fourthly, irrespective of our own marital status, whether we're single or married, whether we're happily single or happily married or not so, irrespective of that, this passage on how Christian wives and husbands are to relate to one another speaks to all of us. How does it speak to all of us? Because it points us to a reality that is greater. That is the relationship between Christ and the church. Um, this may explain why Paul devotes so much time and space to this particular relationship. You know, I as pastor would have loved him to give some time about the relationship between a pastor and the church. But no, 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 that doesn't get a Guernsey at all. <laughs> this is the focus. This is much more important. Um, Clearly something, Paul says, there is something unique um, and something even prophetic and powerful about the relationship between a Christian husband and wife that speaks to the rest of us about a greater reality. Verse 32 spells it out, where, let me paraphrase, Paul says, you know all this talk about wives and husbands and the unity that they have as a married couple under God, it's not actually about them. <laughs> it is about something greater, which every one of you is a part of if you're a believer in Jesus, and that is the relationship between Christ and the church. So Christian marriage, the way in which husbands and wives are to relate, is a living illustration to all of us 
of the relationship between Christ and his bride, which is every believer. This is really big. What Paul does here is he plugs us into this massive storyline of the Bible, which goes right from beginning to the end. So in verse 31, oh sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, 31, he quotes Genesis chapter two, right at the start of the Bible. He takes us right back to the very first marriage between the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden. And then in the next verse, verse 32, he takes us right to the end of the Bible, to the wedding supper of the Lamb, the marriage between Christ and his church, his bride. So what he's done is he's described the whole narrative arc of the whole Bible in terms of a story of marriage. You've got man and woman, you've got Christ and the church. And here in Ephesians 5, he brings these two together and says one is an illustration of the other. The greater reality. And so Christian marriage points us towards that greater reality that every believer is part of and looks forward to, that open, intimate, affectionate, wonderful relationship which we, the church, will enjoy with Christ himself. Okay. So if you belong to Christ, if you believe in him, you are his bride with the rest of us and it actually, that's your main identity greater than any marriage that you are or aren't in at the moment. Okay, we've cleared some ground. Now let's begin building. I want to focus specifically on Christian husbands and wives. First of all, the word to the wives, verses 22 to 24. And this is a message for Christian wives, not husbands. I say not husbands because husbands have thought this was for them and have misused it in the history of Christian thought, and said, see, it says, wives, submit to your husbands, so wife, you must submit to me. Now, that is a misapplication, because if that was the application for husbands, then when we get to the bit about husbands in verse 25, Paul would say, husbands, tell your wives to submit to them, submit to you, but he doesn't. He doesn't. In other words, that first bit is addressed to wives, and so it ought to be heard by wives, not husbands. This is a word for the wives, okay? Um, okay, wives, submit to your husbands. Reason? Not because every husband deserves it. <laughs> not because it's simple, it's easy. Not because he's always a nice guy. But because it's part of your relationship with the Lord. It comes out of your submission to Christ. Submit to your husband as you do to the Lord. And wives, here's an encouragement. You can look to Jesus' example of him submitting to his father and know that he, your Lord, submitted. It wasn't easy, but he did it. And he is your great example. He's an example for you. He's an example for the husbands as well, but he's an example for you. Okay. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, what's that word mean, submit? I confess, I had to rethink this. So uh, there was one time a few years back, I was doing a kid's talk uh, in church on this passage, and someone else was preaching. And the kid's talk I did, I came on, and I, I got the kids out the front, and we played a game of following the leader. 
and one person you know, let off and, and, and the others had to follow them. Then I got them back and I, I interviewed them and said, which was hard? Was it harder to lead or harder to follow? And it came out that both actually were quite hard. Hard to lead in a way that everyone actually follows you and hard to follow because someone else is leading you. But the premise of the whole thing was that um, submission actually meant obedience and that's why I chose that. I thought it was really clever. Um, <laughs> And then uh, Sue Harrington rang me up that afternoon. Now, Sue doesn't normally ring me up. Uh, so if you don't know, so Paul Harrington's sort of the grand poobah, the head of Trinity, and you know, like it's his wife. So <laughs> my boss's wife, right? So, <laughs> then, so she rings me up and she says, Chris, I, I, I love your kids' talks and I, you know, I find them so helpful, but I just had an, a little issue with this one. She was so respectful in the way in which she raised it, wasn't it? You know, she, uh, she's not my wife, but she, was, she modeled such good respect <laughs> dealing through with this. And she, she pushed me on it and said, look, my issue was that you seem to define submission in terms of obedience, but actually in the passage, when you get down to the end, in verse 33, it says... So husbands must love their wives and wives must respect their husbands. The passage itself defines submission in terms of respect. It doesn't use the word obedience, respect. Ah, huh. now I was very grateful for that conversation because she changed the whole way in which I think about it. Um, now you could imagine a situation where a Christian wife is respectful of her husband but doesn't do what he says, now how could this work out? So suppose, sorry, Narelle, um, I, don't, I don't think I normally tell you what to do too much. Um, <laughs> she goes, oh, I try and suggest it more. Would you like to do, or could you do that? Anyway, suppose I did, suppose I said, Narelle, do this, and she really didn't want to do it. Okay, what is submission going to look like in that situation? Well, it will, she will work hard at respecting me. So she'll say, Chris, I heard you say that, Obviously, that's important for you. I just want to understand why it's so important for you that I do this. Now, maybe I won't have actually thought about it too much. She's just uncovered that. And I go, oh, okay. <laughs> or maybe I have thought about it, but she's trying, she's respecting me enough to actually give me a chance to explain it. And then maybe she'll come around, or she might say, but... But from my point of view, the reason that it makes it it's so difficult to do exactly what you've just asked is, is for these reasons. And then suddenly I understand where she's coming from. So you can see that in that situation, non-obedience, if you like, might be very respectful. Okay, now I don't know that we've had many of those conversations <laughs> because we haven't needed to, but that's, I think, what it would look like, okay. The reason for wives to submit or respect is because, verse 23, just as Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the wife, and that relationship between Christ and the church is meant to be reflected in marriage because one points to the other. So if Christ is the head of the church, we're told the husband is the head, and we ask, well, what does that mean? And... Uh, all the exegetes tell us it means authority. And you think, well, what does that mean? Authority to do what? Authority to boss her around? Authority to order her? What, what does that word authority mean? Well, the, the hint comes in the word that you probably glossed over in verse 23. 
the description of the church as Christ's body. Okay, now that word body keeps coming up. It's there four times in the bit to husbands. Did you realize that? Or did you just gloss over that? In verses 28 to 31, the church is described as Christ's body and no one ever um, doesn't care for their own body. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own body, okay? And then we work out that the authority, which is defined with this word body in mind, is the authority to care. No one ever, everyone cares for their own body, so the husband should care, love his wife, okay? So that, that word um, uh, authority or head is, is the idea of having the authority to care for, or as the ESV puts it, to cherish. I love that word cherish. Uh, this is a word we don't use very much these days, although it was really significant if you're married because you, you said it in your marriage vows. I promise to love and to cherish. Now, having done a fair bit of marriage counselling over the years, many couples that have come to me are, often have, in my experience, miss, uh, sorry, swapped that word, swapped that vow to love and to cherish for something else to love and to put up with. But that is not what you promised each other. You promised to love and to cherish. Now, when you cherish something, what do you do? Will you... You, you think it's precious, you, you, you esteem it, you, you value it, you, you care for it, right? Well, husbands are meant to do that for their wives. Uh, test, ask your wife, does she feel cherished? Okay, you might do that at home later on, <laughs> okay. And if the answer is no, you might say, what would make you feel cherished? <laughs> when do you feel most cherished by me? In other words, you're trying to work out how to love and care for her. All right? So that is the husband's role. It will come out in a thousand ways um, in which he treats her through the day. Little things, big things. The wife's role is parallel to the role of the church to Christ, and that is to respect him, to give him respect, to make it easy for him to exercise his role, so that even if and when she disagrees, she's careful to respect him, not to roll the eyes, not to slander him, not to ridicule him, not to make fun of him, not to talk him into a corner, but to be appreciative of his concern. Now, of course, that's really easy, right? No. <laughs> but... In my experience of doing marriage counselling, this is gold. This is so gold. Pastoral gold. What do husbands most need from their wives? Respect. What do wives most need from their husbands? To be loved. Right now, if you could bottle that and market it, you'd become a millionaire. So for wives, remember that the way to bring out the best in your husband is to respect him. He's going to struggle with anger and he's going to struggle with issues of self-worth if you undermine him and disrespect him. But if you respect him, he will thrive and he'll actually have a greater capacity to care. But husbands, what your wife most needs is to be loved and now for husbands, verse 25, husbands, love your wives, not for what you can get out of it 
out of her, but for her best interest, for her best concern. Okay, now, guys, notice that the headship is defined not in terms of, her, of you telling her what to do, but in terms, when it's explained, of your love and care for her. We, are to mod, we guys are to model ourselves on Christ's care for the church. Now, obviously, some of what Christ did for the church cannot be replicated. We cannot give ourselves up as a sinless sacrifice for her sin to atone for her sin, and neither do we need to. Christ died once for all, right, for our sin and hers. We don't need to be a sin substitute or a sin offering for her anymore, and even if we, ha we had to, we couldn't do it because we're sinful, that wouldn't work, <laughs> okay, we don't need to, but we need to replicate um, his loving, sacrificial, selfless concern. This, in fact, is the only place in the New Testament which speaks of Christ's regard for the church in terms of his love for the church. Of course, we see it illustrated lots in, in the rest of the Bible, but this is the only place where said Christ loved the church. And isn't it significant that this is said in the context of what husbands must be to their wives? It's that important. Christ gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy. How? Cleansing her by washing her with water through the word. This is different to what I thought it would say. I thought it would say, Christ loved the church to make her holy by giving herself, himself up for her, cleansing her by washing her with his blood. Because that's how Jesus makes us holy. But it doesn't say that. Christ loved the church to make her holy by giving himself up for her, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word, what, why does he use that water and word stuff? It's, it, it plugs into the whole marriage thing that was going on back then. So um, for Jewish betrothals and marriages, the, a guy would become betrothed to a woman when he gave his word of commitment. It was um, at, a, at a ceremony, okay? This was a bigger than our engagement. It was formal, it was legal. And there was a word of commitment that he would give. And then just before they would get married, she would have a bath. Of course, she's had baths before, but she would have a bath just before she got married. And it was symbolic to say, I'm washing myself to be clean for you. So he's picking up on these two aspects of the marriage thing to illustrate Christ's, what Christ has done for the church because that's what we're talking about, the marriage, right? And the goal is uh, that Jesus gave himself up for her to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And of course, we don't make our wives holy. Christ makes our wives holy. But we are to have the same goal that is on the day, so husbands, on the day of Christ, your goal is that you will have treated your wife in such a way that through your, married, your years of marriage together so that when Jesus comes, she will be in really good shape. She will be ready. She won't just be limping over the line. Her faith won't be just this burning ember. She won't be this bruised reed because of how you've treated her. Just hanging on by a thread. She will be strong in faith. 
She will be walking with the Lord. She will be prayerful. She will have dealt with issues of repentance in her own life. She's someone who's growing in the Lord um, because she's soaking up the word of God and the word of God is actually mentioned, isn't it? Husbands, this is your cue. How do we love our wives in this way? It's got to involve the word of God. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, oh, I feel so guilty. I haven't read the Bible as much as I should with my wife. Okay, can I just say there are lots of ways to do this. You might just be reading through the Bible yourself and come out with a verse that you just text to your wife during the day. That's good. You might just um, pray with your wife. That's really good. You might tell her that you're praying for her during the day. That is really good, okay? And you don't need to be this massive Bible scholar to read the Bible with your wife anyway. You could just read it and then pray. How about doing that together? <laughs> you don't need to be, you know, have a PhD in New Testament or something like that. You remind her that God's real, uh, of the central truths of the Lord that you've got to hang on to. But Jesus is coming back. He's our hope. Uh, when she's struggling, put your trust in him. Okay. Remind her of the important things and set the example yourself. Okay. Um, Complement that with the thousands of ways in which you're caring for her and cherishing her. What you are teaching her is that she is a precious and valued bride. And that helps her to believe it of her status in the Lord too. Okay. Let me draw some application. I think the point is that we've heard is that Christian marriage is really great, it's wonderful, but it's not the greatest. There is a greater reality which all of us are part of, the relationship between Christ and his church. So now let me make three quick points of application for singles, marrieds, and then for all of us. Singles, um, you ought not to think that the way to complete yourself in life must involve getting married. Uh, Jesus wasn't married, was he? He was a single man, and yet he was the most complete human being who's ever lived. Uh, it would be wrong to think that a husband or a wife must complete you, because they can't. Jesus Christ completes you. That is the great reality. Uh, and in fact, Jesus was married, wasn't he? He's married to the church. <laughs> Though he was single, he's married. That's the great reality. However, if you're single and you see a Christian marriage, um, be encouraged. Now, you won't see a perfect Christian marriage, right? But when you see a husband trying to love his wife and a wife trying to respect her husband, be encouraged. This is pointing you to the relationship that you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Be encouraged. If you're married, uh, for happily married believers, it would be a mistake to um, idolise your marriage, wouldn't it? Because that's not the greatest reality. Uh, it's not your husband or wife who will complete you, it's Jesus Christ. It would be wrong to put on them the expectation that only Christ can meet. Okay? They are your wife and your husband, praise God, but they are not everything. Okay? There is a greater reality. Um, however, you are a wife or a husband and you have a chance to powerfully reflect something eternally significant in your relationship. What a great privilege. What a great privilege to treat another person like that. What a great privilege to be a witness and a reminder to the rest of the church in the way in which you treat the, uh, your husband or your wife. Okay. 
finally, for all of us, uh, it does tell us to relate to each other in the context of grace and kindness and love out of our relationship with Jesus himself. Now, that's how we all should treat one another. And the last thing I want to say is that everyone doesn't actually need to pay attention to what Paul says to the wives. I know husbands, I said, don't pay attention to that, but actually now we do, because you're a bride. You're part of the bride of Christ. So the way in which wives were to relate to their husbands is to reflect how we relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. How must a wife relate to her husband? Out of respect. Well, that is how we must relate to Jesus. We must respect him. Give him our time. Listen to him. Delight in him. Give him our praise. That is what it means to be his church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's a wonderful, wonderful part of your word. And we pray, keep transforming us in our personal relationships. We think of the wives here. We think of the husbands. We think of future wives or husbands. But for all of us, help us to relate to one another with grace and also help us to relate to the Lord Jesus Christ with massive respect and regard for him who loves us and died for us. Amen.